as we've studied through the book of Ruth, we've chosen to sort of break it up geographically. The first chapter finds us in the land of Moab. And at that point, the story is mainly about a woman by the name of Naomi. And Naomi and her husband Elimelech go down into the land of Moab and uh, walk out of the will of God. And there they are chastened. And when we walk out of the will of God, it always leads to chastening. Uh, you know, you remember the old commercials, it's 10 o'clock, do you know where your kids are? You remember those? Well, uh, don't matter what time of day it is, the Lord always knows where his children are. And uh, if we're not where we ought to be, he, he is sure to let us know that. So they fall upon hard times. Three graves are dug in Moab that didn't need to be there. The grave of Elimelech and the grave of Malon and the grave of Chilion. Uh, if you could, you could still find them today if there were some way. Uh, to locate them, they'd still be there. They never left Moab. And, uh, boy, what a tragedy to think about things we lose when we walk out of the will of God. And uh, some of us have some things that we wish we could get back, but they're buried in Moab. We can't bring them back with us now. We just have to live with those consequences. Chapter number 2 finds us in the fields of Boaz. What an encouraging truth it is that chapter 1 ends this way. In verse 22, it says that they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Uh, let us always remember that uh, chastening for the present time, it seemeth grievous, but afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And chapter 1 doesn't close out, but what the Lord is pointing to a harvest time and a time when he's going to bless and use Naomi once again. So chapter number two, we find ourselves in the fields of Boaz. We're introduced to this man that is the kinsman redeemer. And uh, we took a break after chapter number two, and we uh, studied just a, a little short lesson on the kinsman redeemer and how that Christ is a picture of our kinsman redeemer. And there were three basic things that a kinsman would redeem. He could redeem the land that had been lost uh, before the Jubilee year had come. And then he could... Uh, he could redeem the liberty of those that had sold themselves into slavery and servitude. And then, of course, he could redeem uh, the widow, the lady, if you want to say it that way, if you like it to be alliterated, uh, the widow that had lost her husband. And she could uh, be redeemed by that kinsman redeemer, and he could raise up children for his brother's name. And that first child that they bore together, uh, would receive the inheritance that had been uh, his deceased father's. And every child after that then, uh, would uh, the inheritance would be divided properly uh, between the two inheritances. And so chapter number three gives us the truth of the kinsman redeemer exercised or expressed, uh, exemplified in the person of Boaz. In chapter number three, we find ourselves at the feet of Boaz. Well, in chapter number four, there's a wedding takes place. And uh, what a beautiful picture. The book of Ruth, it opens with a death, but it ends with a wedding and the birth of a little baby boy. And it gives us hope and encouragement. We may make a mess of our lives at times. I'm glad that, uh, that, that we get to continue on by the grace of God. Some good can come out of the mistakes that we've made. I heard a preacher make this statement this week. He said one of the greatest truths about Jonah is that he lived long enough to write his own story. He didn't end in the whale belly. Uh, he was able to come out of there by the grace of God, and he lived long enough to write his own story. So it's good to know we can move on when we've made mistakes. And so chapter number four, we find ourselves in the heart and home of Boaz. And there the story, uh, or this portion of the story, 
end. So I want to begin reading. Let's read the first four verses, and then we'll go to the Lord in word of prayer. The word of God says this, Then went Boaz up to the gate, and sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such an one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city, and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come again, out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants, and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, I've divided our notes into four different sections, and it roughly defines the way that this chapter goes. If I was to give you a synopsis of this chapter, Boaz is keeping his promise. And chapter number three, uh, Ruth has come, and she's laid at his feet. We talked a lot about last week uh, the significance of her request. She said to spread your skirt over me, and how that that evokes the idea of the wings of the Almighty God, and how that he was pledging to her that he would protect her and watch over her. And he makes this promise to her in chapter number 3. He says, Tarry this night, in verse number 13, it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee. As the Lord liveth, lie down until the morning. Now he in chapter 4, the next day has come, the morning has dawned, and he is keeping the promise that he has made to her. Now, there are a lot of truths that we can gather from here. Let me say that uh, in many ways, in a prophetic sense and in a dispensational sense, we are being taught about the day when the Lord will return and claim us unto himself. Now, we talked a little bit about last week about how types work and uh, how that, you know, we said that if you ladies go to get a dress fitted or if you men go and get a suit and get it fitted to you, you don't point down to your shadow and tell the tailor, say, all right, take my measurements from that shadow. Uh, no, it's merely there to give you an idea of the truth. You don't draw doctrine from types, but rather you understand types in light of doctrine. And so oftentimes, as you study types in the Old Testament, you'll find that sometimes very key and important truths will be skipped over because God is revealing an aspect of a broader and larger truth. Uh, there is no question, as you study the Word of God, that there is a distinct difference between the rapture and the day of the Lord. The rapture is when God comes and raptures his bride, the church, away. It's described as being something that is secret. It's described as being something that's known only to those that partake in it. It is described as something that happens in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And yet the great day of the Lord, or the second coming in power and in glory, or however you'd like to describe it, the Bible calls it the day of the Lord, describes for us the time in Revelation chapter 19 when Christ returns in power and in glory. And he defeats the army of the Antichrist and he sits up an earthly kingdom. This is not done in secret. In fact, the Bible says that as the lightning goes from the east to the west, every eye will look upon and behold him. This is not going to be something that's going to be done in a moment. A very real and definite battle is described for us uh, in many places in the Word of God. And so there's no question that those are two distinct events that happen at different times, separated by seven years of tribulation. But oftentimes, as you study types in the Old Testament, one object will be seen in view. 
And so if we were to observe chapter number 4 uh, as uh, in typology and, and in dispensational uh, viewpoint, we would say that this presents the day when God is going to come back, uh, rapture his bride, purchase us unto himself, marry us unto himself, and we will be one with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, now, Tom would fail us to look at it in that light. I'll go ahead and tell you. I encourage you to study it in your own time. Uh, what I want us to look at here is just a strict exposition of this passage. In other words, I want to tell you what's going on here and give you some truths that might help you in your life and some things that might remind us of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So there are four basic divisions to this chapter, and I want you to notice them with me. Let's read over them. The first four verses present to us the ordinance concerning redemption. In other words, we have in the book of Deuteronomy, and we'll read a little bit of it here in a second, uh, that Moses under the law gave this provision concerning what was to be done if a widow or if a portion of land was to be redeemed by the kinsman. Uh, and we find this exemplified in the actions of Boaz. Now, this is important. Here's why. Because one of the things you'll find as you study the way that the, the Old Testament or Orthodox Jews live is much got added to the Scripture. Much got added to the truth of God's Word. In fact, when Christ talked about the traditions of men, talked about through the traditions of men, making, uh, robbing the Word of God of power, he was not just speaking in vain platitudes. He was speaking very distinctly about the Talmud, the rabbinical writings, the oral tradition that rabbis had passed down. Many times when the rabbis found themselves at odds with the Lord Jesus Christ, it was over these very uh, distinct oral traditions. You remember that they came and they rebuked Christ because his disciples ate without washing their hands. And uh, that was part of rabbinical tradition. And Christ rebukes them right back by pointing to David's men eating the showbread in the tabernacle. And he shows this truth, that there is a letter to the law, and that that letter of the law, expressed and taught a spirit of the law. Uh, you hear people often talk about the spirit of the law, and what they'll be saying is, well, you know, there's an intent by it. Whenever the Supreme Court uh, rewrote the Affordable Care Act back of this, they said, well, you know, that wasn't the spirit of the law, and we could have a, 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 a pretty ugly debate, I'm sure, about whether they have the scope and authority to do that. But what they were saying was, when they wrote the law, this is what they meant. There is a spirit of the law. There is an intent behind it. Now, God's Word is infallible. And so, God perfectly relayed the spirit and truth and moral of the law that he was trying to evoke to the children of Israel when he gave his law. But when the rabbis came in and began to try to insert their teachings and their ideals alongside the Word of God and elevated the traditions of men to the same level as the Word of God, it began to cloud a lot of the teachings of the Old Testament. Now, you say, Preacher, why do you go on about that? Because here we have a beautiful thing. We have God revealing in the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy a law concerning redemption. But then not only that, we have a snapshot, a portrait of how that law was exercised in a day before the pharisaical system of rabbinical teaching was instituted. That is profoundly important because we find in this lesson that there were certain cultural connotations to these things, and they are carried out. We see some of the truths that were retained and some of them that were neglected. So uh, we see the ordinance concerning redemption. Then I, in verses 5 through 8, we find the objection of the nearest kinsman. Now, he was just about to redeem uh, the, the land of Naomi until he found out that Ruth came with it. Then we have in the next few verses the official redemption, verses 9 through 13a, 
the official redemption by Boaz. So this is this is I mean it's on paper. You know this is official. This is not just Boaz's promise to Ruth, but this is him carrying out and making good on that promise. And then we'll say a word about the offspring of Boaz and Ruth because that gets to the real heart of I believe what the book of Ruth is given to us for. So I want you to notice a few things in these verses. We'll try to hurry through. We already started a few minutes late, so I know you'll forgive me if we go a minute or two late, won't you? All right, okay, good. I, thank you, Jessica. I knew it was going to get quiet when I said that. All right, I want you to notice first off that Boaz calls the near kinsman in verse number one. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens here. There, there is an, an idiom. Now, do you know what an idiom is? Uh, an idiom is not the guy that drives with his blinker on, okay? Uh, an, an idiom is a, a turn of phrase that has a cultural connotation. Can I give you, for instance, we might say something like this, six of one is half a dozen of the other. Now, if we were to take that literally, we'd find that to be a fallacy, wouldn't we? Six of one is not always half a dozen of another. Uh, but we we are trying to convey this truth that, uh, you know, one is the same as, as the other. And uh, there's other instances, good for the goose, good for the gander, things like that. A catchphrase, as it were. And it fascinates me that we have one of these in Scripture, because there's a reason for it. Look at verse number one again. Then Boaz went up to the gate and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, notice these next four words, Ho, such an one. Now, very likely that is not literally what Boaz said. He probably called the man's name. You say, now, preacher, you're trying to change Scripture. No, I'm not trying to change Scripture. I don't think God is trying to deceive us here. God explicitly leaves this man's name out. You say, is that significant? Well, I think it's significant. Do you know why? Because as we've studied this lesson, we've found that if Christ is the near kinsman, but there's a kinsman near, someone that has an authority, has a right, can lay claim upon the life of Ruth before uh, Boaz can, who could that be or what could that be in the life of the lost sinner except the law of God? It is him that has the first claim over us. We all, every one of us, we're born sinners in this world. And Paul described the law as being our first husband in the book of Galatians. And so why is it significant that God uses a turn of phrase when he has whoever, and I believe it was probably Samuel, but whoever it was, pin down this narrative. He has him use a turn of phrase. I believe it's significant for this reason. The Bible tells this to me and you, that Jesus Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness to everyone that believeth on him. Paul described it to us in the book of Colossians when he said that Christ took away, took out of the way the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us, nailing it to his cross. We understand that the Old Testament law uh, had basically three different facets. It had a ceremonial purpose. It had a societal purpose. And then it had a moral purpose. The moral purpose of the law has never gone away. The things that God said were good for you in the Old Testament are still good for you. But the ceremonial and the societal portion of the law has been done away with. Uh, we find Paul in the book of Acts getting into trouble when he takes a Jewish vow. He shaves his head and takes a Jewish vow. When he did that, it was at a time in his life, and we can fuss and argue about it if you want later, but it was at a time in his life when he was out of the will of God. God had told him, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to go no matter who tells me. None of these things move me. I'm going 
to Jerusalem, stepping out of the will of God, he then put himself under the chains of a Jewish vow. Now, let me ask you something. If we're under the authority of a Jewish vow, that means we're not under the authority of Jesus Christ. We have liberty in him. We're not to allow ourselves to be brought into bondage under the rudiments of the world and the vain traditions of man. It's part of the reason that I don't believe in the keeping of the law. Part of the reason, I believe it's proper that we worship God on Sunday. I believe that's proper. You say, why? Because Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday. The Sabbath was never for the New Testament church. The Sabbath was never for the Lord. Uh, the Sabbath was always for the benefit of man. The Sabbath has been done away with in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our rest, and we recline in Him. So I believe that's significant. I wanted to point it out because that just thrilled me as I began to think about it. God won't even write this man's name in Scripture. Why? Because he made his choice. He wouldn't redeem Ruth, and so she has no more dealings with him ever again. Thank the Lord that what the law could not do, in, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. I don't need to have anything to do with the law. I'm under the law of Christ. I'm in liberty through him. So we see a, an interesting truth found there. But I want you to notice three things very quickly in that verse, and we'll move on. Notice the place of the calling. Boaz went where? He went up to the gate. Now, the gate of the city was a very, very public place, and we'll touch on that here in a moment. But it was like the epicenter of life. We don't really have these in society today, mainly because of, of suburbs and because of automobiles. Uh, I mean, just very seriously. But some of you, if you weren't raised in this time, uh, definitely your parents were raised in a time where downtown and, and the market square was the epicenter of life, and you could go down there at a, at a given time, and you could expect to see your neighbors. You could expect to see family there. Why? Everybody went into town to pay their bills and buy things they couldn't grow for themselves. It was the epicenter of commerce for a society and for a community. Well, the gate was the same way. Oftentimes, and I don't have time to deal with all of it, but oftentimes there would be an outer wall and an inner wall, and in between these two walls would be the gate of the city, and that would be a place where teachers would teach. That would be a place where commerce would be done. That would be a place where people would meet and gather in a social way. And so uh, Boaz, he goes to this important place. He goes to the gate. It reminds me of the fact that Jesus Christ, when he, when he spoiled all principality, he made an open show of them. He triumphed over them openly. The cross was not hid away in some obscure back alley, but rather it was along the main thoroughfare going in and out of Jerusalem. And he hung there before all men that they might see him. So we see the place of the calling. We see the providence of the calling. Boaz knew where to meet this man. Let me say that the Lord Jesus Christ, he knew where, when, and how to meet the Old Testament law to satisfy it. He came and he, I know there's a lot of people want to dispute and say, uh, you know, that, that it's funny to me. I don't know why, but every time you see a painting of Jesus in a church, he's always white. You ever notice that? He's always white with blonde hair, blue eyes. Uh, can I just inform you, Jesus was not a white man. He was a Jew. Uh, that was his ethnicity. Why? Because he had to be a Jew to bear the Jewish law. He had to be a Jew to observe those things, and he was born of a woman born under the law, and he lived 33 and a half perfect years, never once uh, transgressing the law. Then he took that perfect righteousness, and his life was given on Calvary upon the cross. There he met the law. He knew where he had to go. He knew what he had to do. 
Uh, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah describes him as having his face set as a flint towards Jerusalem. He, and none of those things could move him from Jerusalem. He, uh, he said this. They, they came to him. They said, Lord, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify you. He said, for this hour came I into the world. What, now shall I pray to my father and say, save me from this hour? For this hour came I into the world. He knew where he had to go to meet the law, and he met the law on the cross of Calvary. But then notice the proclamation of this calling. He cried out. He called this man, very likely by his name. He said, ho, such an one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Christ knew what he was getting into when he went to the cross of Calvary. It was not, listen, the, the cross was not the tragic end to a beautiful life. It was the providential, foreordained plan of God for the redemption of humanity. The book of Revelation calls him the land slain from the foundation of the world. So Boaz calls the near kinsman. Verse number two, Boaz collects the ten elders. Now, why did he do this? Well, I think he did it because he wanted three things to, to, to be known about his commitment to Ruth. I want you to note that it was a public thing. He was not doing this in secret. He was publicly claiming Ruth and Naomi. It was a proper thing. He was following, and we'll actually see it here. Uh, well, you can look on your notes. We can glance at it. We'll get to it later, but you can glance at it now. About halfway down through that uh, section of verses, it says this on the right-hand portion of it. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. The elders had to be gathered there. This was something that had to be witnessed by those that were around him. So, uh, And we understand, too, there is significance in the witness of the law and the prophets concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not lost on men. And I think most of us it's not lost on that there were witnesses. Uh, there were earth's witnesses in the sense of the law and the prophets. There were society's witnesses in the sense that every walk of life was present there at the cross. And then there was heaven's witnesses, evidenced by the fact that uh, God turned his back on his son. He was not uh, he was not oblivious to the suffering of his son. We know the Bible teaches that legions of angels could have delivered him, so the angels were aware of what was going on. In other words, the cross of Calvary was well witnessed. And then notice that it was permanent. Uh, Boaz couldn't come back later and say, well, I know you heard that rumor that I redeemed Ruth, but, you know, that's all it was, was a rumor. No, it was a permanent thing that he redeemed Ruth. Boy, there's two great lessons right there. One of them is this. When God saves us, he saves us eternally. He saves us eternally. Uh, but then I think another beautiful truth is this, that the cross of Calvary is a lasting work, not just in our lives personally, but in humanity. In other words, the cross can still save men today, just as it did. I, I mean, the moment that he suffered, died for our sins, cried out, it is finished. The cross is still just as powerful today as it was then. The promises that God made to the sinner are just as real today as they were then. It was a permanent work. And then I want you to notice, thirdly, that Boaz communicates his purpose. In verse number 3, he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech. He presents to this kinsman a dilemma. Now, I don't know if this man already knew about this. Uh, I know that it seems he does not know all the details. Now, it could have been that this man had been traveling on a journey throughout this time. Uh, very likely, the events that had unfolded over the past two chapters had just unfolded over a matter of a few weeks. And uh, as Boaz knows this man is coming through the gate, maybe this man had been on a journey. He was not aware of it. But basically, Boaz confronts him, and he says to him, and they knew each other, no doubt. 
if they were uh, that close akin. In fact, when he says uh, our brother Elimelech, he says it as though this man knows who Elimelech is already. No doubt this man was closer related to Elimelech than even Boaz was. And so he, he says to this man, here we have a problem. Uh, Naomi's land has fallen into someone else's hands. She has no place to live. Elimelech is dead. Malon, Chilion are dead. There's no one to redeem this land, and you are the one that can redeem it. So he reflects to him the dilemma that they're in. Verse number four, he reflects the duty that he has. He says, and I thought to advertise thee, saying, buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. He says to him, you have not just the privilege, but you have the responsibility. When he says, I thought to advertise thee, you know what he says? He said, I thought I should let you know. I'm just letting you know that this duty is placed upon you, that you have a responsibility to do this. Let me say that that the law, though it was not ever given to redeem mankind, it was given to point men towards Calvary. And it certainly was given to suffice for a time until the sun would come. In fact, the Bible describes it in the book of Galatians when Paul is, is unveiling these truths to the church at Galatia. He says that, that the heir for a time is placed under tutors. And that's what the law was. It was a tutor. It did serve a purpose. Uh, a man could see in the shadows and truths of it a picture of the coming sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, through it, the gospel was preached unto Abraham, and Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. So evidently, in some way, there was a responsibility that the law had to point men to the sacrifice of the Lamb and to the love of God. So he says to this nearer kinsman, there is a duty that is placed upon you, but then he reflects to him why he's really there. (laughs) And I kind of like the, the, the way that sounds. I mean, he says, here we've got a problem, and you've got a responsibility. But now let me tell you why I'm really here, Mr. Nearer Kinsman. He says this at the end of verse 4. He says, if thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me. It kind of reminds me of what Paul said when he said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. If righteousness come by the law, then the law would be sufficient. Then we'd believe in the law. We'd keep the law. He says, if you can redeem it, redeem it knowing full well that he probably will not. He says, but if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. Boaz says, I'll tell you why I've really called you here. I've called you here. I I didn't call you here to find out if you want Naomi or if you want Ruth. I called you here to let you know that I want to marry Ruth. I'm interested in her. Let us never think, let us never think, that the cross of Calvary was an audible that God called when the Jewish nation didn't work. Now, I am aware, I am aware that God structured things in such a way that, that if the Jews had accepted Christ, he could have set the kingdom up right then. You ever wonder why he said this? He said, Elijah was prophesied to come. He said, but I say unto you that, that if you believe, Elijah has already come. He's talking about John the Baptist. He said, John the Baptist has come in the spirit of Elijah. In the book of uh, Malachi, as the Old Testament closes, there is a prophecy given that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. And uh, it, to this day, Orthodox Jews, when they perform a Seder, there is, an, uh, there is a, a, a fifth cup that they have. There is an extra spot open at the table, and they say they're looking for Elijah to come. Now, if you study your prophecy, you know there's coming a day when two witnesses will come. And uh, we believe very strongly that one of those is going to be Elijah. Uh, but... Christ said that if you had believed, then John the Baptist could have been Elijah for you. 
He said this to the nation of Israel. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, thou that killest the prophets, how oft would I have gathered thee as a mother hen doth her chicks, and thou wouldest not. He's saying, I wanted to do this for you. I wanted to be your Messiah. I wanted to set up a kingdom, but you rejected me. Now, God wasn't bluffing on those promises, but God was aware that Jews would reject his son. God knew that. The cross was not, okay, we'll try this thing with the Jewish nation, then if that don't work out, I guess there's always, you know, the cross as a backup. No, the cross was always, always the plan of God. And that's the reason Paul stresses in the book of Galatians that faith was always the means, that God gave this promise by faith, and that, that uh, the law, which came 450 years after, cannot disannul that promise that God had made by faith. God had made the covenant by faith. Why? Foreseeing that he would by faith justify the heathen. God always intended for the cross of Calvary. Boaz, when he comes and calls this man, he knows what he's got in mind. He knows what he's got in mind, so he relates his desire. Well, how does it go? It's interesting. Verse number 4 ends with the near kinsman saying, I'll redeem it. But this near kinsman does not know about Ruth yet. You see, he was happy to take care of Naomi. He was happy to get a good deal on the, the heritage and estate of Elimelech. But Naomi was an old woman. She was past the years of bearing children. And all this would have done would have added to this man's inheritance. I want you to notice that he considers the redemption in verse number 5. He thinks about it. He says in verse 4, okay, I'll do it. But then notice what happens. Verse number 5, then said Boaz, what day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. So at first the man says, okay, good deal on a plot of land. I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that. We do not know how much time was left until the Jubilee year, uh, but we know that if there hadn't been much time left, he could have bought it, reckoned from the years to the Jubilee, and then when the Jubilee came, because there was no one else to inherit it, it would have been reckoned amongst his land and amongst his family, and he says, hey, I think that's a pretty good deal. See, the law was fine bringing us under bondage. The law was fine staking claim to us like we were just another number and just another property and just another piece of meat. But then all of a sudden, Boaz says, but now I want you to know, if you're going to buy the land, you also have to marry Ruth. Notice what it, we see in this. We see not only the deed that he sought, he was looking for that deed to that land, but we see the damsel that he spurned. He says in verse number 6, and we'll, we'll examine this again here in a moment, but I want you to notice his answer. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. See, he was fine with with the land, but he didn't want the widow. One preacher put it this way. One preacher said that, that Ruth, she was worthless. In fact, she was worth less than dirt. Because this man, he wanted the dirt, but he didn't want the damsel. He didn't mind to buy the land, but he didn't want Ruth. And so, notice then the duty that he shirked. Now, Ruth is a, is a young woman. She has years to bear children. And this man had a responsibility to raise up at least one child to the name of Malon, that he might bear the inheritance of Malon and the inheritance of Elimelech, and that that line might continue in the nation of Israel. But he says, nope, if that's what it's going to be, I'm not interested in it. We had a preacher uh, a year or two ago, he was preaching on the book of Ruth, and he said this, uh, that the law doesn't deal in love. 
The law has the capacity to bring a man into bondage. The law can show us where we've done wrong, can condemn us, and show us that we're a sinner, but it can't do anything to redeem us in our iniquity and in our sin. Only the Lord Jesus Christ could do that. A couple of weeks ago, we preached on what the law could not do, and the law could. It could, it could convey God's standard. It could condemn the sinner. It, it, could con, it could convince them of the Savior, but it had no means. It could show you where you were wrong, but it couldn't show you how to get right. It might teach you how to live right, but it couldn't do anything about your past. I mean, how could the law? And this is the question I often like to ask people when they say, well, I'll get there by my good works. You know, I've heard people say that, and you have too. I'm a pretty good person. Well, you know, my parents were, were Christians, or my daddy was a preacher, or I've been baptized, or I've joined a church. And often I'll ask them, well, have you ever done anything wrong? They'll say, well, sure, I've done something wrong. I'm not perfect. Well, what are you going to do about that wrongdoing? You might make up your mind to start living right today, but what are you going to do about your past? See, the law, the law can't traffic in love. The law can't make in, make up for your past. The law can't do anything. It, it, it may try to, to renovate who you are, but it can't redeem what you've already done. We find in this passage, that he says, I, I, I will not. We see the duty that he shirked. He said, I'm fine buying the land, but I don't want the lady. Verse number 6, we see that he concedes his right. Notice how he does it. Well, first off, there's a note of dishonesty. He says this in verse number 6, I cannot redeem it for myself. Now, when we say dishonesty, we, we, we are speaking in very explicit terms. Because we might understand why he could not. I sort of, uh, you know, gave the illustration a couple weeks ago uh, that, you know, I mean, I've got a very loving and, and, and compassionate and patient wife. But if I came in and said, now, honey, here's this poor little old girl and she ain't got no one to take care of her, so you're going to be my wife, but I'm also going to marry her too, uh, I, I'd, I'd be in trouble. <laughs> Amen. Uh, she's patient, but she ain't that patient. But he does not say I should not do it. He does not say, my wife would not allow it. He says, I can not redeem it. In some ways, this is dishonesty on his part. He probably could have. But in some ways, it does evoke to us the limits of the law. And I just talked about it, so I'm not going to labor on it. Let me just say, the law can't do for us what Jesus Christ can do for us. Your good works can't do for you what Jesus Christ did for you at Calvary. They cannot listen. They can't save you. They can't help save you. And they can't make you more saved. You say, I don't know about that. Read the book of Galatians. That's what the whole book's about, is, is, is Paul saying, look, uh, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, and you don't have to keep the law to, to be more saved or to stay saved. I believe that, that when we get saved, it'll promote and it'll, it'll produce good works in our lives. There's no question about that. Uh, real faith works. There's no question. But let us never confuse a faith that works with faith and works. I believe in a faith that works. But I don't believe in faith and works. Uh, if I'm saved, I'm saved by faith and faith alone. And my good works don't make me more of a Christian. Uh, they, they may evidence the life of Christ in me, but they don't make me more of a Christian. So we see his dishonesty. We see his distress. He says, I love to do it, but I, I can't because of her. But really, he gets to the heart of it. He says, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that is this. When it was just Naomi, it would have been nothing but an addition to his inheritance. But now if he marries Ruth and he raises children up under Ruth, the first one is going to get all that inheritance. 
his current children are not going to get any of the inheritance of Elimelech. If he just married Naomi, she'd be too old to bear children. All his kids would get all that had belonged to Elimelech. But because of Ruth, there's too much baggage. He says, I'm sorry, I cannot do it. I cannot give to her children or to the children that we would have together. I cannot allow them to be reckoned amongst my other children. Let me say this, uh, that the law could never make us part of the promises that God made to the Jewish people. Now, I don't have time to talk about all of it, but get in there sometime. Read the book of Romans. Read chapters 9, 10, 11, 12. Read about that wild olive branch being grafted in with the natural olive branch. Read the book of Galatians. Read how that we have been brought in by faith into those promises that God made to his people. I'm not saying that the church are the Jews. I'm not saying that America uh, is the Jewish nation. What I'm saying is this, that through Jesus Christ, the middle wall of partition, Paul says in the book of Galatians, or book of Colossians, has been broken down, and we are one person in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is very much still doing something in the heart and lives of the Jewish people and in the Jewish nation today. God's not done with the Jews. I believe that with my whole heart, but I understand this. Though God is not done with the Jews, when God is done, it's not going to be Jew and Gentile. It's going to be all of those that have been redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, well, I can't do that. And the law, by the way, couldn't do that for you, but Christ can. We see finally his decision. What does he say in verse number 6? He says, I cannot redeem it. I will not. Now, you got to remember, I mean, I don't know if Ruth could hear this. I don't know if she's listening to what was going on. But no doubt, in Boaz's heart at least, his heart must have sunk when that man said, I'll redeem it. But oh, the joy that must have flooded his soul when that man said, nope, Boaz, you're right. I cannot redeem it. And he concedes his right, and he allows Boaz to redeem her. Well, then finally, I want you to notice the confirming of his relinquishing. Now, we're not going to talk a lot about it because we talked about it a couple weeks ago. But look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Verses 7 through 10. It's on your page there in front of you. It's that that's bold and italicized. We have the, the, the reason for what takes place in the next few moments. Now, now it says in verses 7, 8 of, of, of uh, Ruth chapter 4, it says, Now this was the manner in the former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe, gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Now, what's that talking about? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 25 tells us. It says... Uh, in the law of redeeming a widow uh, that her husband had died and they had borne no children. It says, if the man, speaking of the nearest kinsman, if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate. Now, where are they at? They're at the gate. Unto the elders. Now, who's there? Ten elders. And say, my husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house, and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him that hath, loose, that hath his shoe loosed. Uh, this statute was given in the Old Testament. We find the spirit of it being carried out 
here in Ruth chapter number 4. I do not know why it was not exercised in this very distinct way. But again, I think it's it's significant because it's not necessarily carried out in this very distinct way. There could have been reasons for that. It could have been the fact that Ruth, being a Gentile, was not allowed into that public place of uh, of, of law giving and of, of of contract making and of uh, decisions being made. I do not know why, but we have no reason to believe that at that particular point, Ruth was standing right there because it says in verse 8, Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he, meaning the, the kinsman, drew off his shoe, and he gave it to Boaz. But we understand that this statute of the shoe had a spirit that was was of it. And, and what was that spirit? It was the spirit of shame. That was the connotation. Can we say it that way? If you don't like the word, the spirit of it. The connotation was that of shame. We see the shame of this shoe. I, I, I pointed out a few weeks ago when we talked about this, some of you remember back when George Bush was president, and he was doing that press conference, and uh, that Arab man took his shoe off and threw it at him. And, uh, you know, that was funny to see it. I mean, you thought, man, what a nutty thing to do. But that Arab man, that meant something. That was the highest insult that he could pay to our then president. And there was a shame associated with this action. This man was conveying that he was not willing to perform his duty. And from that day forward, he was not known by his name. He was known by the man that took his shoe off. Maybe that's the reason God doesn't tell us his name. From that day forth, you know what he was called? He was called the man that wouldn't perform his duty. Let me just say again that the law, you say, what is the law to us? The law is a constant reminder to us that our works of righteousness are insufficient. Every time that the law is pointed to in the New Testament, it is always pointed to for its inadequacy and insufficiency. There's no place for keeping the law for a New Testament Christian. Now, I understand, again, there is a morality to the law, and there are moral issues of the law, and those things have not been abolished. In fact, you find a lot of those things uh, that that in the New Testament are reaffirmed and and restated in different ways and in in different words, Uh, but... The ceremonial law and the societal law has been done away with in Jesus Christ, and it holds no place for the New Testament believer. That was the statement of the shoe. The statement was, this man don't want nothing to do with me, and I don't want nothing to do with him. I found someone that loves me and cares for me. And then finally, I want you to notice, I keep saying finally, that way you'll stay with me. (laughs) I want you to notice in the next few verses we see the official redemption by Boaz. Boaz keeps his promise. We see the witness of the redemption in verses 9 and 10 in the first part of verse number 11. It says, And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off, from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. Notice the scope of this redemption. I won't reread it. We just read it. But Boaz bought everything. He didn't just buy the things that benefited him. He bought everything. We've noted that Ruth was really of no benefit to Elimelech. Uh, she she would bear him children. There's no, or I said Elimelech to Boaz. Uh, Ruth was no benefit to Boaz. 
uh, other than the, the love that they had one for another. I mean, Boaz was a wealthy man. He had many handmaidens, and no doubt he could have chosen any of them if he just wanted someone to bear him children. Uh, Ruth didn't come with any lavish dowry that would be bestowed upon Boaz. She didn't come with any fringe benefits. There wasn't any kind of bank account or trust or anything that came with Ruth. If anything, there was a chance that Ruth could have brought shame to the name of Boaz. But Boaz says, I'm not just buying part, I'm buying all of it. I'm buying Naomi, I'm buying the land, I'm buying the inheritance, and I'm buying Ruth to be my wife. I love her. And I'm desiring to care for her and to have a family with her. Let me tell you something. Aren't you glad when God bought you through the cross of Calvary, he didn't just buy you for the good times. He didn't just buy you for the things that you could help him with as if we could help God with anything. He bought you lock, stock, and barrel. He bought every single bit and part of you, the good and the bad. And he knew what he was getting into. We see the scope of this redemption. We see the significance of this redemption. At the end of verse number 10, why did he buy her? He bought her, it says, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren. In other words, he bought Ruth, why? To give life to her name. When he bought her, he bought her to have children with her. But when he bought her, he bought her that that name of Malon and that name of Ruth might not die out and be lost forever. When he bought her, when he paid that debt, when he took her unto himself to be his wife, he did so that he might breathe life into her name and into who she was. When God saved you, he didn't save you to have somebody to occupy a pew. He didn't save you to make you a church member. He didn't save you just so he could uh, snap his suspenders and say, look who I am, I'm God. He saved you that he might breathe life into who you are. The book of Ephesians chapter 2 says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. He didn't just save us so that we could say that we're Christians. He saved us that he might raise us from the the deathbed of our sins. And then notice the seal of this redemption. All the people, verse 11, that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. There was somebody that bore witness to this transaction. Uh, The Bible tells us this that the Holy Ghost in Ephesians chapter number 1 is the earnest of our redemption, and that God's Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are His children, and by that Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. Listen, if you've been born again, there's somebody that bears witness to that. I I understand folks doubt their salvation. I've gone through periods of time when I've doubted my salvation. But let me tell you something. I may not always act like His, but he'll always act like mine. I may not all let me say that again. I know there's just a handful tonight, and I know nobody's going to run an aisle, but you ought to felt something on that. I, I know I have not always acted like his, but he has always acted like my father. And the Spirit of God, when I do wrong and when I sin, bears witness to whose I am. He lets me know who I belong to. Do you remember who? what the question that Boaz asked Ruth when he first saw her? He looked at the reapers and he said, whose damsel is this? Well, there ain't no question anymore. There's someone that bears witness to who Ruth belongs to. She belongs to Boaz. They're married. They're wed. They have a family. There were witnesses. There might have been days that, that Ruth may be, and I know, I know Ruth's a picture of the sinner and Boaz is a picture of Christ, and, and in as much as they are, it's a storybook romance. I'm aware of that, but there might have been days when Ruth didn't feel very loved. 
There might have been days when she said, well, Boaz ain't even acting like a husband to me, but there was a place she could go. There were some people she could go to, and she could look. I know they didn't wear wedding rings back then. She could have gone to them and said, is it really true? Did he really buy me? It could have been that there were days when in her despair and discouragement, she said, surely he don't love me. Surely he couldn't care about me. Maybe this is just too good to be true. Uh, Maybe I don't make him happy. Maybe this is all just a dream. But she could go to them and say, did it really happen? Did it really happen? Does he really love me? And they'd say, oh, yes, Ruth. We were there that day. We saw what happened. We bore witness. There may be days we get discouraged. We say, does God really love me? Does he really care about me? Or maybe we get down on ourselves and say, surely God couldn't love me. This is just too good to be true. All this Christianity nonsense, I mean, surely God couldn't love me. I'm so wicked. I'm so rotten. But the Word of God and the Spirit of God bear witness to that promise of God that he made us. And if we came to him in faith, his promise is true for us. And there's a witness that dwells within us to testify whose we are. So we see the seal of redemption. Notice not only the witness, but the well wishes. And they they uh, they say a few things. Verse number 11, at the end of it, uh, they say, The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which two did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephrata, and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. I want to just say three things about that. The first thing is they say, I hope that that Boaz through Ruth, this Gentile, the house of Israel is built. We have a foreshadowing of grace to the elect in verse number 3. Grace to the people of Israel. Uh, they say, we want you to be like Rachel and like Leah. The two of them built the whole house of Israel. What is, what's meant by that? Well, the 12 tribes were the collective children of Rachel and of Leah and of their handmaidens. And through them, the nation of Israel was established. And so they're saying, maybe through Ruth, through this little Gentile, the house of Israel can be built once again. What a picture of the fact uh, that through the Jews' rejection of Christ, the gospel has came to us Gentiles. But through our accepting of the gospel, we can now turn to the Jew and say, hey, that Jesus Christ that the Jews slew and crucified, he is the Messiah. He loves you. He'll redeem you. He'll save you. He'll forgive you if you'll turn unto him. So there's a picture of grace to the elect. There's a picture of glory to the Son. What do they say? They say to Boaz, they say, do worthily in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. Uh, They say, Boaz, make a name for yourself here in this land. And certainly through this action, through the redeeming of the bride, the Gentile bride, glory has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice thirdly, there's a note about the government of the lion, or government should be to the lion. You say, what do you mean? Well, there's a prophecy given uh, when, whenever in the Old Testament the Bible talks about the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, it says that of Judah that, that the, the uh, scepter would not depart from Judah and a lawgiver would come from Judah. We know that Judah is the kingly tribe. Israel does not have a king at this time. But in a few short generations, David will be born. He's the first king of the land and nation of Israel. And, of course, we know that David was just a picture, not just a picture and type. He was a real historical figure, but he was also a picture and type, a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah and uh, and the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so they're saying that, that maybe through Ruth, this Gentile, there will be a king 
that will be claimed. They point that out when they say, Fair as whom Tamar bear unto Judah, and Judah is the son of uh, Jacob. So uh, we have a few things that are that are well wishes, and they point prophetically to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the wedding of the Redeemer is noted in verse 13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. Uh, it's always interesting to me that there is no process, no uh, a format, no outline for a wedding in the Bible. We have, we know that wedding, of course, is, is an institution of God. Marriage is an institution of God. Uh, we understand the principle and ideas of marriage that are given to us through the Bible, but there's no place where God says, all right, you're going to have a wedding. Here's how that wedding should go. I, I think the reason why is because it's more than just a ceremony. It's a covenant. It's a commitment that we make. Let me tell you something. It'll help us through the hard times of our marriages if we'll remember that when we got married, we stood at an altar, the place of sacrifice and the place of dealing with God. And when we took that bride to us or when when you ladies took that husband to you uh, and you stood, you were making not only a, a promise to them, you were making a promise to God. Uh, I know people can get married at the courthouse. If anything, they were kind of getting married at the courthouse. I don't think it's a sin to do that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you want to get married at the beach or at the lake or in the mountains or down at Chuck E. Cheese, I don't think that offends God. But most marriages are done in a church house. Why? Because it's a matter of a covenant between us and God. So uh, what a fascinating truth that's found there in verse number 13. Well, now, we're, we're out of time, but let me just point out these few things as we close. And there's not a whole lot really to point to. Uh, at least we can skim over it quick. We see the offspring of Boaz and Ruth. Notice the conception. A child is born, it says, and when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. Verse number 14 and 15, we see the compliment. Well, all these people, they'd been wagging their tongues at Naomi when she came back in from Moab, you know. They'd been saying, oh, my, is this Naomi? I mean, is this the one that used to be so pleasant? Her name was even called Pleasantness. Her name was called Naomi. And Naomi said, oh, no, don't call me that. Call me Mara, uh, for the Lord hath dealt very bitterly, bitterly with me. And I went out uh, full, and the Lord hath brought me back home empty, and the Almighty uh, hath, uh, you know, spoken, testified against me. Well, now what are they saying about her? It says in verse 14, And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel, and he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. Oh, my, I could say a lot about that verse. Let me just say there's going to come a day when the nations of this world We'll look to the Jewish nation. You say, preacher, that's Zionist. Well, call me a Zionist then. I don't care. I don't care about the labels. It, 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 to believe that the Lord is the king of the kings, but also the king of the Jews, if that's Zionist, call me a Zionist. It, 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 if believing that the Lord is going to set up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem is Zionist, well, go ahead and call me Zionist. Whatever label you need to put on me, I'm a Bible believer, and that's what the Bible teaches. There's going to come a day the nation's... Uh, Israel won't be hated by them anymore. I know Israel's hated by them today. Uh, just the other day, I was watching those protests that the college kids were doing, and what, whatever you think about that, that's fine. That's your business. But in those protests, it was supposed to be uh, about anti-racism, you know, racism and it was supposed to be about uh, low, you know, a minimum wage, and it was supposed to be about free college tuition, things like that. All of a sudden, you start to see Palestinian flags waving around. You think, what kind of sense does that make? Uh, there's a worldwide hatred of the Jewish people. And it's not just in this country. It's not just in any one people group or any one age group or demographic. But all over the world, there's a hatred of the Jewish people. Why is that? 
There's such a hatred of Jewish people. There's going to come a day it's not going to be that way. The nations are going to look to the Jewish people, and they're going to look to the one that reigns upon the throne, and they're going to give praise and adulation to him, and they're going to, the Jews won't be a hated and spurned people. Then notice the comfort, verse number 16. Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And it's not saying that she nursed that baby in the sense of, of, of feeding that baby, but rather it's saying she, she became a, a, a mammal <laughs> to that baby. I mean, to put, put it very simply. Uh, you know, I've got a church baby, and he's got a nanny, and he's got a papaw, and he's got a mamaw, and he's got a pat-pat, but, but he's got a whole church full of, full of mamaws and papaws. And uh, what a joy it is to see them love on my child, my child love on them, and, and them care about each other. Well, Naomi, she thought she'd never have a grandbaby, but here she is holding this little baby. What a beautiful picture of God's love and care for her. Then I want you to notice, finally, we see the continuation. Now, this is really what the book of Ruth is about. It says in verse number 17, And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying there was a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. Now, you might not know the name Obed, but you may know who his son was. He is the father of Jesse. You say, Jesse, I believe I've heard that. Well, you may not even know who Jesse is, but I promise you, you know who his son is, because Jesse, he's the father of David. It says, Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez begat Hezron, Hezron begat Ram. And Ram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. Well, preacher, why, why is this little book of Ruth in my Bible? Well, there's a lot of reasons. But some would suggest that one of the main reasons is this, because it shows us, it, it fills in the gap in the lineage of David, from David to Jacob. And to Judah. Judah was the son of Jacob, and Perez was the son of Judah. And then you can read the genealogy right there, takes it right on down to David, and shows us that David was the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. 